So yesterday afternoon, uh, the elders returned from a three-day retreat, and, uh, and if you have a relationship with any of our elders, you need to ask them the story of how their senior pastor nearly had them all killed in one moment. Um, it was a near disaster. You know, you have this, uh, you're out on a boat on Racetown Lake having a good time. I'm driving the boat. And I nearly swamped the whole thing in one moment. And uh, uh, let's just put it this way. In, in the process of this, Joel disappeared. I have never seen such a wave of water come into a boat like that. And, uh, and then you see what, value, what is valued the most by those in the boat. Uh, you see one elder immediately saying, where's my phone? Another one like, where's my drone? Another one saying, what just happened because he was asleep? Um, <laughs> And, and then we have one in the water laughing because he was the one trying to walk on water. So uh, we felt like we had a little bit of a disciple Jesus moment out on a lake, and uh, it was a lot of fun. We just had a great time. And I want you to know that the past three days, as our time hit kind of a crescendo on Friday night, uh, we are absolutely confident in what God is doing in and through this church. In fact, we have received a lot of good news over the last few weeks, and, uh, and we are anxious to share it with you. We're just not going to do it this morning. And this is the point where you probably are very disappointed because you set it up like that, you want to fulfill it. But there has been some incredible news we've received, and, and, but we need to be able to communicate it in a way that, that uh, helps build the bridges to what lies ahead. And, and it's both in life, and yes, it is also uh, tied into the building project itself. But uh, we have seen so many things that we're praising God over, and, and, uh, and I'm anxious to share. So, but in time, over the next few weeks, that will happen. Uh, also, we started... Uh, uh, a series that the timing of this more had to do with in my own personal journey, I have been uh, learning slowly uh, but surely that God desires to have a very personal and intimate relationship with me. And we know those buzzwords when we talk and read the scriptures, but it's hard to really live that out and believe it fully and experience that intimately. And while I do not consider myself an intercessor in the way when we think that person's a strong intercessor, a strong prayer warrior, I, I don't label myself that way. But I do believe that as, as God has worked on me, sharpened me, and, and uh, convicted me along the way, that I have experienced a very special relationship with God. And it's based on his mercy and his grace. And as I have interacted with people over the last uh, few years, uh, I have discovered that a lot of people struggle with certain barriers when it comes to prayer. And it often shows up in moments when uh, we're in gatherings and, and uh, the leader of the gathering will say to an individual, hey, why don't you pray to open up this time? And then you see the look of shock and also terror hit that person's face. And then you're like, well, are you okay with that? You're like, well, I just don't pray very well. Or in, in, in some cases, like, well, I don't feel that God hears me like he hears you. And so 
what often happens in those contexts, in those family gatherings or large gatherings, is that the token pastor or leader gets assigned the prayer. So in our family gatherings, growing up, my dad was asked all the time to, to do the prayers. And, uh, and then <laughs> I ended up into the family business and doing the same thing. And so at family gatherings, I often get asked, well, why don't you do the prayer? Then when my dad and I are both in the room, it gets confusing. Like, who do you assign to do the prayer? Um, it rooted in that kind of moment is the aspect of insecurities. Uh, we, we wonder if certain ways that you pray actually is more effective versus another, which then means if that's true, then the way a person prays might be better than the way another person prays. And, and that can become a very debilitating journey or question in regards to our own confidence to, to just simply go before God. Another aspect might be in your own sense of worthiness. We've sang some songs that, that speak to that, but when it comes to going before God, some of us feel like, I just don't feel worthy. And you might be thinking in terms of comparison. You look at another person and say, well, they're way more righteous than I am. They're much closer to God. So they won't hear me. They would, their prayers would be more effective than mine because I'm, I'm more of a sinner or imperfect than them. Others might be debilitated in prayer because they simply are riddled with doubt. And the reason why doubt often runs really strong in some people in regards to prayer is that they've had something they've prayed very passionately for only to see that it didn't go the way they had been praying. Somebody that was really sick, that was never healed, or a, a, a relationship that continues to be fractured and not restored. The list could go on. And if you've been passionately going before God in those areas, and, and you do not see movement or traction, doubt starts rising up. And then we become intimidated or even, let's say, unmotivated to pray because doubt is riding high. So the question then becomes, can sin, can words, can my doubt hinder the prayers I pray? And that's a very good question. And I think we'll come to some good uh, endings on this. But before we jump in there, let me define the word prayer because we have not done so up to this point. You've had two sermons on prayer so far. This is number three. And I want to be able to narrow it down to where we're talking the same thing when we mention the word prayer. The reason why this is important is because, generally speaking, God can communicate through them a myriad of ways. Romans 1 says that God communicates through his creation, that literally mankind can see the nature of God, the power of God, just by looking at creation. And so it communicates. And Romans 1 even says that because of that, no man is with excuse when in regards to being aware that there is a God because there's communication. God also communicates through other people to you. So there are times when God puts something on a person's heart. They go up to you. They offer a timely word of encouragement or a timely word of exhortation, a timely word of redirection. And, you're, and that person may have no idea what's going on in your life. And you're looking at just saying, that had to be from God. 
So I'm not going to talk about those things. When I say the term prayer, I'm not talking those moments of creation crying out and communicating to us who God is. I'm not talking about the moments when God puts something on somebody else's heart and, and they are able to then speak into your life and it communicates to you. That's not within the definition of prayer I'm going to be working with. Those are clearly moments where God is communicating to us, but that is not where we're going to draw the lines when we use the term prayer in this series. So here we go. This is the simple definition of the word prayer we're going to use as part of the series. It is conversation between God and man. Simple as that. We're not talking all forms of communication because God can communicate a myriad of ways. But when we're talking about prayer, we're simply going to be giving, limiting it to the idea of, of the conversation between God and man. So God is both listening and speaking. Mankind is both listening and speaking. So within those parameters, we're going to look at prayer. And we're going to begin by answering these difficult questions about can our prayers be hindered by sin, doubt, or, or our words. We're going to begin in James chapter 1. And so if you do not have a Bible, uh, their Bibles are about to be handed out here by ushers. Just simply raise your hand and they'd be glad to provide you one. The text we're coming from in James 1 is found on page 847 and the Bible is being handed out. James is one of the most practical books in the Bible. If, you're look, if you struggle with understanding Scripture uh, and you want to just start somewhere and read and get uh, a sense of, of things and be able to understand, James is a great place to go. The book of John is another one. It's one of the best Gospels of understanding the heart behind the Messiah, Jesus. And so, um, again, this is a great book. We're just going to be dealing with a small portion in James chapter 1, verses 2 to 8. And let me begin reading. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks in wisdom, you should ask of God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Okay, so God is speaking through James here. John, and the initial context is that there are trials of many kinds that you and I face. And, and, and he doesn't define the different types of trials, but just the reality is each of us face trials of varying degrees. And the context that God says here is that consider it joy whenever we face these trials. Because the testing of your faith in the midst of the trial will develop perseverance. Now, in this trial, two things are going on. There is your desire in the midst of the trial to have it removed, correct? If there's a trial going on that is hard, it's difficult, we as people who are praying are often praying to have that trial or that difficulty removed. 
All right, so that's our projected uh, heart and motive in this moment of conversation between God and man. From God's perspective, he's looking back at you, knowing the trial, and he's desiring for you to be able to become more mature and complete through the trial. That's two different end games, right? The person praying, saying, I want it removed. I want it done. The other side is saying, I'm going to use this to strengthen you, to make sure that you are complete, not lacking anything. But then, based on that motive from God, he says, but if you do lack something, we're to ask. In this case, in the midst of a trial, he suggests that if you're in the midst of a trial and you're having to deal with that trial, he says, if you lack wisdom, which wisdom would say, how do I handle this situation? How do I pray in this situation? How do I engage a situation? How do I emotionally behave during this situation? If we lack wisdom, which would guide us on how to respond in that manner, he says, let us ask. Pray. Converse with God. But then, says, but when you pray, believe and not doubt. Now, he contexts that. Okay, believe and not doubt. So, uh, we need to look at something here because that suggests that there's a contingency plan here. If you pray when you're lacking something, that if doubt starts entering in, oh, oh, then the response of God is now held up or, or something is going to be shifting because of our doubt. But we got to look at an important phrase before we get there. It says in verse 5, if any of you lacks anything, then it says, if you lack wisdom, ask of God who gives generously to all without finding fault. So there's already a precondition set up here that that God's got a motive that he wants to grow us up in the midst of the trial. Our motive is like, we don't like the trials. We want it removed. So there's this tension going on between end games. But if we do lack something and we start to realize it, I don't know how to handle this, God says, ask me. So when we ask, we need to know that when God's telling us to, to ask him how to handle it, he says an important phrase, I respond without finding fault. Okay, there's your context. And then let's now read that because under the lens, he says, I don't find fault. Then he says, but when you ask, you must believe and not doubt because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything. Well, how do you reconcile a statement that says God responds without finding fault but then there's a charge in this that when you ask, believe and don't doubt, because if that's going on, then you've got a situation where you shouldn't expect to receive anything. So what's the truth? Is God contingent upon your response being full of belief and no doubt? That, is he contingent upon that? In other words, he cannot do what he wants to do in you unless you are perfectly doubtless and also in full belief. The text would suggest that that might be the case if you just take the one piece, but you have to accept the full context. It says, God lets us experience trials because he wants to bring us to full maturity. 
And then he's doing so knowing that it's going to begin to reveal our weak areas. And then he asks us to then go to him asking for fulfillment. He goes to that aspect of it and says, okay, I want you to ask. You're lacking. You're starting to, it's being revealed in you. And now he's saying, ask me and I won't find fault with you. But when you ask, believe and don't doubt. I mean, this is one of the most puzzling passages. But you must see in verse 6a, the very beginning of it, he says this, when somebody doubts and they pray, they shouldn't expect anything. All right? They shouldn't expect anything. Does that say that God won't do anything? All right? Now, in some of the different translations that you're using, it might imply that, but it, it, it genuinely isn't an absolute, if you believe, if you don't believe and you don't doubt, God won't. That is not what's in the original text. It is clear. This is, you should not, it's a better in the English language for our understanding to understand that we shouldn't expect a response of God that we desire. But we got to keep in mind that when we're praying, God is operating from a different end game than we are, typically speaking. I mean, who of us pray, God, keep the trial going that I may grow up? I, I mean, really, has any of us done that? I mean, I even understand this passage after really going through it, and I'm going back and it's like, have I ever done that? God, thank you for this trial. Keep it going a long time so that I can grow up. I've never gotten there. I've I never been in such a place where I wish the trial to keep going. But yet, it starts with consider pure joy when you're in it. And when you're in it, just know God's using it to grow you up. And that if you start discovering you don't know how to handle it, you're needing wisdom, he says ask. He won't find fault in you in that. Just ask. And then believe and don't doubt. Because the doubter is like that person that's like a wave driven by the winds of everything else. You're not standing at all. So what's the best way to interpret this passage? I find that when there's something in the epistles that is puzzling, that I look to see, does Jesus give us an example that mirrors this, that I can get some kind of grasp on how I should interpret this passage. So I'm going to do that with you now. Let's go to the book of Mark. And I want you to, to go to chapter 9, and in the Bibles we handed out, this would be ver page 706. So Mark chapter 9. Just love how Jesus handles situations that becomes very real to us. I can relate to some of what's written here um, from two angles, as a, as a father, but also as a follower of Jesus Christ. And you wonder, like, why didn't that work? So let's look at the text. Here we go. Verse 17. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes with his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. Now, by the way, the disciples are standing right there. In this moment, they're hearing that somebody's calling them out for a, a failure of fulfilling their duties. You know, they, they had been already been successful at casting out demons, but for whatever reason, in this moment, it didn't work. All right? So 
This man is desperate. He had already brought him to disciples who had already proven they could do this, but could not. But the father didn't stop there. He wanted to see his son delivered from this incredibly difficult and terrifying situation. So verse 19, Jesus' response to they couldn't do it. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long should I put up with you? So bring that boy to me. So the disciples, they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Have you ever read stories in the Bible and if I was actually there, you'd be totally freaked out? Or maybe you have the opposite response. It seems so incredible that it's not possible. All right? Well, God gives us this because it's reality. He wants us to see what can happen. I have had a mission team across overseas in South Africa where literally as we're walking into a situation, a demon possessed somebody and that person fell to the ground and voices that were male coming out of a female young teenager started speaking and this girl was convulsing. Let me tell you, that was a moment where any of our students that would read such a text that would say it seems too impossible for it to be real, all of a sudden became believers. Because you realize this stuff can happen. And so this is happening right before Jesus. And I'm sure people were shocked. So what's Jesus going to do? Jesus looks, verse 21, Jesus looks at the boy's father and says, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into the fire or, or into water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. This is where I love Jesus showing what he's thinking. He says, if you can? Because really what this man just, I mean, think of who this man is speaking to. He's speaking to the creator of the universe, the son of God. And he says, if you can do anything. Jesus wants that to stand out for all those who heard it. So he restates and says, if you can, everything is possible for one who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. Okay, we have a moment here. This man has just acknowledged, I believe, but I also doubt. So, tie it to James 1. How do we handle this? Now you actually have God in human skin here on this earth giving us the opportunity to show how God handles this situation. What does Jesus do? Verse 25, when Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit, you deaf and mute spirit. He said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently, and, he, and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, and I love this too, because if I had failed and had been called out in front of everybody, I wouldn't want to know why I failed 
and ask that question in front of everybody so the answer comes. Because they knew that Jesus could get really personal very quick. So they waited till he's indoors. The door shuts. Now we can ask, why weren't we able to do that? Why didn't it happen for us? And Jesus replied in verse 29, this kind can only come out through prayer. You see, up to this point, they had been sent out and were proclaiming the kingdom of God was near. If you read in Luke 10, it talks about this. That Jesus sent them out for the first time away from him so they could proclaim the kingdom of God was near. They came back ecstatic because they said, Lord, Lord, you wouldn't believe all the things that have happened in your name. By just saying his name, demons were coming out of people. Now, I could take you to other texts to explain that in the angelic or spiritual realm, there are rankings, just like there is in our military. There's the private at the lowest end of things, and then there is the general at the highest end of things. Well, in the spiritual realm, it speaks to it in Scripture that there are rankings. And some of these demons, they're low level. Some of them are high level. Apparently, this was some high level demon, okay? And he's saying, this one, you can't just simply say the name of Jesus. It requires prayer and petition. It requires an intensity to remove the dominion of darkness over this young man. Teachable moment, right? But don't forget the context. You have a man who has asked God for intervention. And he acknowledges he believes and he doubts. And God's response was, I'm going to teach you. I'm going to lower that doubt. I'm going to increase your belief. And for that matter, I'm going to do it in a way that others will begin to believe and not doubt. Because why? What was the context of James 1? His desire is through the trial that we become more complete. We be, that we're not lacking anything. And so you see that where there was an incompleteness for the disciples, so they're now growing. They're less incomplete now because of this moment than they were before because they had failed, and now they understand why. They didn't pray. They kept trying to say the words. In Jesus' name, come out. All right. Because we're with Jesus, come out. And they've tried all the different ways to say the right words, and it wasn't working. They didn't go before God and pray. Now I want us to turn to Luke chapter 18. Jesus still context here. He's dealing with two people that are, that, well, dealing with a crowd of people that there are some who think that they have it all figured out before God and others who do not and know it. Jesus is going to teach in this moment through two different people's prayers, how God responds to mankind. So let's look at, starting in verse 9. So the context is this, in verse 9 he says, To some who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on all those who are in the room, Jesus decided to say this parable. It kind of stinks when there's somebody in the room that has such discernment that they can see right through you. Have you ever sat over a, a table for lunch or breakfast with somebody that you just feel like, I can't even look at them. They're looking right through me and deep inside. 
Jesus had that uncanny ability, and you can see it on display multiple times. And, but here it is. He's seeing the room. He knows that already in the room, there is a pecking order being established. Who's the most righteous in the room? Who's the one that's going to be heard most by Jesus? Who's the one that's going to stand out and Jesus is going to praise before the others? But Jesus, seeing the context of the situation, decides, I'm going to teach in this moment. Because again, his goal is, he knows the faults, but he doesn't base his actions by, on finding fault. It's about growing us up. So what does he do? He shares a parable, a simple story that cuts to the heart. Here we go. Here's his story. Verse 10. Two men went up to the temple and pray. One a Pharisee, the other one a tax collector. All right, so two very polarizing opposites as far as generalization within society. Pharisee, the most righteous, the most upheld and respected in society, the ones that were the teachers of what is moral and immoral in society is the one praying. And the other would be the tax collector, which in their society was known as the turncoat, the one who would rip you off, the one who would pat his own pockets, the one you could not trust, and the one who was so greedy that you would never want to have fellowship with them. Now, if Jesus had stopped there and just said, there's two men that went to the temple and pray, one a Pharisee, one a tax collector, if he had stopped there and said, which one do you think God was hearing from when they began to pray? Well, they would have said, well, of course. The Pharisee, the one who is seeking after God that applies all the standards of life, not the liar, not the swindler. There's no way. But look at how the story takes an unexpected turn after just saying two men went to the temple and pray. He describes the prayer of the Pharisee first. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed. God, I thank you. I thank you that I am not like other people. Okay, just for a moment, imagine if I was the one praying this in front of you during one of the prayer moments in our service. God, I thank you that I am not like all of them. <laughs> thank you for appreciating the moment. So God, thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even the tax collector who's over here praying. And just to clarify why he's better, he says, I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all I have. I'm sure the prayer went longer. Jesus just couldn't stomach to say the rest of it. Verse 13, but the tax collector stood at a distance. He didn't even look up to the heavens, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Hmm. So the prayer of the righteous man reveals something about his belief. Now, remember the first week, I shared with you on video with the raspy voice saying, but one of our elders said this, I can tell you a person's theology by the way they pray. So what's the theology of this Pharisee who is praying? Well, first of all, that self-assessment is accurate. 
when standing before God. So therefore, he was good, thus deserving. The reality is, is that while it may be close in the sense of what is moral, he was so far in that what's behind morality is the heart. Remember, Moses was seen as righteous because of his heart. God looks at the inner man, not the outer. But in this case, misunderstanding where God looks. God was looking on the outside according to this. Hmm, doesn't work, does it? Number two, his theology said that God's favor and prayer is contingent upon our goodness in our right words, our right actions, and our right disciplines. Again, reality is God's seeing through the smoke screen of all those actions and looks at the heart. Thirdly, his theology would say and presume that, in, that prayer's effectivity is based on the pecking order of your goodness compared to someone else. The reality is, is that if there is a pecking order, you better be fighting for the back of the line because Christ says the last will go first and the first will go last. Lastly, his theology says that we can impress God with our prayers and therefore we can also impress others. The reality is his prayer is not a horizontal thing. It's vertical. And that God that you're praying to can see right through it. Let's look at the prayer of the lesser man. By not looking up, there's something connotated culturally in the, in the Middle Eastern culture. It suggests that he realizes he is inferior and the one he's speaking to is superior. You see, the posture of the Pharisee was, look at me. And he's looking up and out, confident in himself. The other one is, I can't even look because I know what I am and I know what he is. The prayer of the lesser man also suggests in his theology that uh, God looks right through you. So his self-assessment was to be humble and accurate because you can't lie to God. You can't lie to God. So his theology is accurate. He can't, you can't lie to God. God knows a lie. Before it even comes to your lips, he knows the lie is coming. Lastly, the theology of this man who is lesser, God is exalted. And with himself, he lowers himself. He understands that theologically, God is to be exalted and that we are to be looking at him as in need of grace and mercy. So what's God's response to these two prayers? Let's continue on. Verse 14. I tell you, that this man, rather than the other, being the tax collector, this man, the tax collector, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. People were also bringing babies to Jesus. And this is where Luke intentionally attaches another moment to this situation. People were bringing babies to Jesus to have him place his hands on them and pray. When the disciples saw this, they rebuked them. But Jesus, again, teachable moment in front of everybody to his disciples, then calls the children to come to him. 
Do not hinder them, he says, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. God's response is this. He esteems the humble. He lifts up the humble, especially a prayer prayed in a humble spirit. Secondly, God elevates the one who trusts in him to do that elevating. And not, God doesn't elevate the one who's already elevated themselves. And lastly, and I think probably the most important image to carry in this, God wants us to approach him with a childlike faith, not a childish faith. Do you understand the difference between that? The best example I can give you. When my daughter was little, we had this glass front screen door on our house. And when I'd pull up on the street, she would be at that glass door, pounding the door, and I could read on her lips, Daddy, Daddy. And as soon as Kristen would open that door, she would run out and give me this big hug. See, it didn't matter to her what the day had been prior to that. It didn't matter to her what my day had been prior to that. She just wanted to be with her daddy. Unhindered by what's going on around, just simply wants to go there. God desires that kind of spirit towards him. When we start trying to check boxes about, am I righteous enough? Are my words good enough? Is my doubt too significant enough to come to God? We're asking the wrong question. Our posture should be, he just wants me to come, and I'm going to go. And I'm going to acknowledge like the man who says, I believe, but I'm doubting. Help me in my doubt. Help me in my disbelief. And when we realize we're lacking, he just wants us to petition him. Because he wants us to be complete. That's his goal for us. So the conclusion is this. Sin, doubt, and words, yes, can have an effect upon our prayers with God. But hear this. They are not the ultimate cause or effect of God's response. They're not. God is sovereign. Remember, we worked this through last week. That's where this comes from. Yes, sin, doubt, and words can have an effect upon our prayers with God, but they're not the ultimate cause or effect of his response. He's got a plan that's way bigger than your doubt and your incompleteness. He's about growing us up. He's about helping others see just who he is. Secondly, God is not starting from a position of finding fault. Rather, he's positioning himself as a loving father who is merciful and is guiding his children towards maturity and strength. And lastly, lastly, God values these things. And I really want you to take each one as it is. This is what God values. God values the sincerity and honesty of a person's heart in prayer. God values honesty when we're struggling with doubt. Acknowledge, I am doubting God. I, I feel it. Help me. 
God values acknowledgement of when we recognize our state as being that of a sinner. When we realize where we truly are at, and therefore we come to God with a petition of needing grace. God values belief in his character, belief in his power, that what he accomplishes will be according to his good purposes, even when his ultimate decision hurts. It's difficult to say God is good when there's finality that is not easy to deal with. God desires and values that we cry out to him regardless of our state. We cry out to him and say, God, I can't. I need you. I trust you. I have no idea what your story is. of trial might be. All I know is that when I've had to walk with some of you in the midst of very difficult situations, there are times when the question why comes through and it's difficult to answer. Times we don't always know the answers to it. All we can rest upon at the end, even when answers don't come, is that God is good. God does love us. And that God will help us continue on. And sometimes that's where we're left. Remember that God is about strengthening you. Helping you persevere and not lack anything. And he's doing so without finding fault. In your doubt, in your sin, God is merciful. And he will sometimes, yes... Let the doubt and the sin affect so that you can see you didn't approach God in the right way. But there are other times when you pray that prayer, you're like, you're doubting me, but I want you to, I want you to see in this moment why you shouldn't. And he blows you away. So I would encourage you that in the times that lie ahead, we've been asking you to take five minutes a day when you wouldn't normally pray, to pray. So that you can begin to invite God into parts of your lives that maybe you're not used to doing. And then last week we shared with you to begin to go before God and say, you know what, this is my will, how I'm praying. Help me to know what your will so I can pray according to it. And this week what I would encourage is being transparent before God and say, God, I believe, but I'm struggling with unbelief. I'm struggling with doubt. Help me. I'm trusting that in this moment of being truthful with you, that you're a good God and that you will not strike me dead in the moment, but that you want to build me up and help my unbelief become belief. If you would like to pray with someone this morning, there will be people underneath the cross who will be glad to pray with you, hear out maybe a trial you're going through, and, and speak into that with prayer as well. Um, but I want to give you a final charge. So if you could stand, I'm going to say a passage that is really important for us to believe. So here's the word from Scripture. God speaking. It is my desire that the work I began in you will be brought to completion. said in the third person, it was saying, he who began a good work in you 
will bring it to completion. So, as we go out these doors, know that the God of the universe who is intervening in your life and hearing your prayers and, and responding to your prayers, his desire is to bring about his best work in you. So let's trust in that goodness. Thank you, God, for those words, and we receive them. In the name of your son, Jesus, I pray. Amen. You're dismissed.